All right. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it with me to Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. Acts 13, 13 to 52. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you right there in the back of the pew in front of you. You'll find this on page 781 or 821 of the pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. The title of this morning's message, if you have a bulletin you've seen, is The Cost of Forgiveness. And all of us actually know something about the cost of forgiveness, about the pain of forgiveness. In fact, we started learning that at an early age, probably. Those of us who grew up with siblings probably share and experience something like I had. And so you can imagine two siblings in a room. One of them has been wronged by the other. For the sake of this discussion, we'll assume you and I are the ones who were wronged. It was our sinful sibling uh, who has done the wrong to us. If your sibling is here with you today, y'all would just have to work that out between you, which one's going to play which part. But you're in the room and uh, just crying and crying out to mom to come render justice in this situation. And uh, so mom comes in the room and on the way, of course, your sibling begins to cry too, not out of any sense of remorse, but just to mitigate what might be coming. And so mom comes in the, in the room and um, hears the description of what happened and so forth and says to your sibling, okay, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, you say, I forgive you. What? <laughs> say it. I forgive you. Okay, now, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're pretty sure that your sibling is not actually sorry, right? But you are sure that you don't actually forgive him. Because, you know, you're not ready for that yet. It, just, it doesn't just happen that way, right? There's a, there, there, forgiveness demands something of you, and you don't have it right there at that moment. There's a cost to it. And for those who have received that forgiveness and who proclaim the offer of forgiveness to others. It's important that we understand the cost. That's what we're going to consider from Acts 13. And so let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you, as always, if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 13, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, 
chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come, come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, 
they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you as always for the gift that your word is to us, Lord, that you have spoken, that those words are written and they are truth and they are life to us living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Lord, we need for you to discern our thoughts and intentions and to reveal them to us that we might be changed more and more in the likeness of Jesus. And so we ask today that you would speak, O Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as an instrument to communicate to us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you were here last week, you know, we opened up the first 12 verses of chapter 13 in Acts, and it's where the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out on what would be their first missionary journey. It says they were set apart for the Holy Spirit to the work to which he had called them and sent them out. And they first went down to Seleucia and then sailed over to Cyprus. Once again, there's a map on the back page of your bulletin. Um, that just kind of has an illustration of this. So last week, we looked at legs one and two of that journey labeled on the map um, over to Cyprus and across Cyprus. They sailed from there on legs three and four. That's where we'll be today in Antioch of Pisidia. But they they sailed over to Perga as we just read um, in these verses um, opening our passage today, back to the mainland. And it says that Mark left. It actually says John left. That's John Mark. We know him as Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. But Mark left and went back to Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't offer any explanation as to why here, but just make mental note of that. uh, That will be revisited for us in a few weeks when we get to the latter part of Acts chapter 15. But it says they went up to Antioch of Pisidia. And this might be a little bit confusing because they left Antioch and now they're back in another Antioch. So this is a little bit like, you know, the difference between Washington, D.C. and Washington, North Carolina. There's a difference, right? You know, if somebody told you, you know, you said, what did you do for July 4th? Oh, we went to Washington. They, They probably don't mean little Washington as we call it, right? Well, Antioch of Pisidia is sort of little Antioch, at least in comparison. Antioch, the other Antioch is sometimes called Antioch of Syria or Syrian Antioch. But they're up in Antioch of Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. And after the scripture reading, the rulers of the synagogue asked Paul and Barnabas if they had a word of exhortation. And so Paul stood up and proclaimed 
the message that actually takes up the bulk of this passage that we just read. Verses 16 through 41 are essentially Paul's sermon in response to that invitation to speak. And we'll circle back to that in a minute and focus on the substance of that sermon. But it says at the end of it, the people begged him, begged them to come back so they could hear more the following week. And so the following week, when Paul and Barnabas showed up at the synagogue, the Jewish leaders opposed them. And so they said, well, uh, well enough, if you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we'll go to the Gentiles. And so they did. The Gentiles were thrilled to hear that. And the word was spreading and many believed. It says in verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But even still, the Jews stirred up more persecution against them uh, such that some of the prominent and influential people of the city drove them out of the whole district. And so they went on to Iconium uh, filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And next week's sermon uh, will be in Acts 14, which will be in Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and uh, the remaining part of this first missionary journey. That's sort of a survey of what transpired here. And But if we examine a little bit more carefully Paul's sermon, what we'll see is that he preaches the gospel. That's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> he preaches the gospel, or good news, as he calls it in verse 32. And it actually uh, bears some similarity um, to Peter's. I'll explain how, how in just a moment. But we've, we've talked about this as we've gone through this study of Acts. Um, we, we've, we've kind of wanted to draw out and notice the gospel as it's proclaimed. And I've, I've suggested a definition of the gospel. I've uh, uh, defined the gospel in terms that basically come from Sam Storms. This isn't verbatim um, his definition, but he says basically that the gospel is good news about what God has done in securing forgiveness of sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for everyone who believes in him. And so again, if you've been here throughout this series, you'll know we observe, okay, the gospel is good news, not a good example, Right? It's also good news, not good advice. It's good news of what God has done. And like Peter in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 and then his sermon in the temple in Acts 3 and 4, Paul structures his sermon in a similar way. Number one, that it's a story about something that transpired in history. Um, by the way, part of the reason I'm going through this is as we are uh, this series in Acts is called Beyond because we're wanting to notice what it looks like for a church um, to focus its attention and passions beyond the walls of the church and beyond its Sunday gatherings. Well, that church proclaims the gospel. That is why the church goes beyond, is to share the gospel. And so what is it? that is proclaimed when the gospel is proclaimed. One, that it's a, it's a story about something that transpired in history. It's a narrative. It's a once upon a time story. And so Paul, like Peter, begins with uh, the fathers of Israel. But a story not only about them, but what God has done among them. Beginning in verse 17, 
you'll notice, if you go back and read this this afternoon, you'll notice this is, this is almost entirely a statement about what God has done. Beginning in verse 17, it says, God chose our fathers. He made the people great in Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. Verse 18, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's our first contribution there is being annoying. Uh, he put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan and gave the land to Israel. Verse 20, he gave them judges and then Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, he gave them Saul when they asked for a king. Verse 22, he removed Saul as king and then raised up David to be their king. And verse 23, brought from the offspring of David a savior Jesus. It's a story about what God has done and all man brings to the relationship with sin and rebellion. And I'm, I'm not making that up. You go back and read the passage, that's really all it has to say about man is the sin and rebellion he brings to it. But it goes on to say it's a message of salvation, right? It, it, there's a Savior proclaimed in verse 23. It's a message of salvation, he says in verse 26. And then salvation that consists in forgiveness of sins. In verse 38, which was secured through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verses 30 through 37, if you scan there, um, all talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. I think it mentions four different times how God raised him from the dead. And finally, in verse 38, it says, it's for everyone who believes. Now, part of my uh, purpose in sort of running through that really quickly is to say Sam Storms has a pretty good definition of the gospel. Like that describes pretty well what Paul preached, which was what Peter preached, that it's good news of what God has done in securing forgiveness of sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for everyone who believes in him. It's good news, a message of salvation, salvation that comes by way of forgiveness of sins. Now, if you've been in church all your life, this sounds um, like old and almost cliche kind of stuff. And, and actually, this is one of the reasons I'm spending time highlighting it. Because if we ever become bored with the gospel, we need to get ourselves unbored. It's essential to revisit these themes regularly for a few reasons. Number one, this is the essence of Christianity. This is the essence of Christianity, the good news of what he has done. And even though the gospel is that, good news about what God has done, we are always bent toward making it something about what we must do. We can declare that on, out of one side of our mouth and then be all preoccupied about what we must do to earn God's favor somehow. And there is always someone nearby to offer us some other gospel. Always. There is always some substitute on the market. And it might be... Uh, that it's about purity and holy living is your path to righteousness. It's about doing good deeds, so feeding the poor, building hospitals, uh, feeding the hungry, clothing those who are in need, and so forth. 
And it might be good news about securing the blessings of God somehow, that he's going to um, prosper you and make your business great or whatever. And any and all of those things may be fruit of the gospel, our holy living, our good deeds, and even our walking in favor with God. Those all may be consequences of having been transformed by the gospel, but they are not the gospel themselves. That they To make them so is to leapfrog over the forgiveness of sins that is at the very essence of the gospel. And so in order that we understand this more fully, I wanted to consider today the cost of forgiveness. And I'm gonna kind of use this extended analogy or illustration drawn heavily from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. But he points out there, so, so 90% of the of sort of the thought process here that follows comes from Keller's book. But he, he points out that all real forgiveness is costly suffering. And so to understand forgiveness uh, on a human level, so we, as I said at the outset, even from our childhood, we, we've experienced it, uh, some, of the, some of the good and some of the bad of forgiveness, right? But to, to allow our understanding of forgiveness on a human level to be illuminated, it may also shed some light on how we understand and appreciate the forgiveness of God. And so he says, first of all, uh, that we could use an, uh, an economic example. So imagine that someone borrows your car and in, they come to your house to, to get your car and in backing out of your driveway, they drive over the gate and the garden wall. Okay, so they, they, they destroy the gate and part of the garden wall. And imagine it's not just any gate and any wall, but it's a historic landmark that's been in your family for generations, dates back to the colonial period. Okay, well, you've got basically two options. You can demand that he pay for the damages or you can pay for the damages yourself. And, and we might imagine some in-between scenario where you um, share in those costs, but imagine your friend says, you know, I can't afford, I can't afford what it's gonna cost to repay uh, you know, to pay for that whole wall and gate. But here I've got some uh, bricks and a board, you know, a two by four that I have left over from a project I did at home. It gives you a dozen bricks and a two by four from Home Depot. Well, I mean, that's not only just grossly insufficient in quantity, right? But they're bricks and boards of entirely the wrong kind. You're trying to rebuild a colonial era wall that's a historic landmark and a family heirloom. Those Home Depot bricks don't do the job. Bricks and boards of a totally wrong kind. And so forgiveness in this case means you bear the cost yourself. Either the cost of repairing the gate or the cost of not having a gate anymore and having a pile of rubble. But do you see, first of all, right from this really concrete, no pun intended, uh, um, 
example, uh, economic example, there's no such thing as just forgiving. There's a cost to it. There's an actual gate that's been destroyed. There's an actual wall that's been knocked down. And that cost is there. And either you're going to pay the cost of fixing it or you're going to pay the cost by not having a gate anymore. But the cost is real. But most wrongs that we experience in life can't be quantified in economic terms like that, right? So just imagine or, or think of the spouse who has been betrayed by infidelity or abandonment. Think of the woman who was raped or the child who was abused, the the adult who was abused all their life as a child. And in those cases, those offenses have real cost to them, but they're non-monetary cost, right? They may cost you happiness, They may cost you something of your reputation, freedom, the ability to form healthy relationships with other people. That may have cost you a sense of your own self-worth. But there's a cost, and we have a sense of having been wronged or violated in a way that doesn't just go away when someone says, I'm sorry. Right? That doesn't do it. We have a sense that there's a loss that must be paid for. And so, once again, we have two options. One option is to insist that the wrongdoer pay for it. But because it's not monetary, the way that we would try to exact that payment is by making them suffer. It's going to get real right here in a minute, isn't it? So we might do things such as withholding relationship. I'm not not talking to you. I I want to be sure you notice that I'm not talking to you. Trying to cause pain or wishing for pain on that person. Confronting them and saying nasty, hurtful things. Trying to hurt them emotionally. Trying to tarnish their reputation so that not only do I withhold relationship from them, but I go and try to create distance between them and other people and actually do harm to other relationships by tarnishing their relationship. But I can do any number of other things to try to cause suffering on their part to make them pay. But there's a couple of problems with that approach. Number one, that our efforts to exact payment in those ways tend to make us more hardened and bitter. Right? Again, you probably know this from experience, but we may, we may find we try to make the other person suffer and then we notice they don't look like they're suffering enough. Doggone it, that makes me mad. I, I'm even more bitter now because they're not suffering quite enough. And so, and, or maybe the people around them that I'm trying to create some distance from or between them. Maybe they don't seem affected by that. It hasn't breached that relationship, so I'm mad at them too. You see, I can, I've become more hardened and more bitter, actually, by trying to exact payment in that way. And uh, the other person or, or their loved ones may also think that by doing so, I've gone too far. I've overreacted. And so what do they do? They retaliate. 
Well, I understand why you're upset, but that's a little bit too much, and so here I'm going to hurt you back. And then I say, well, hey, you're the one who started all the hurting in the first place, and so I'm going to hurt you again. And it just becomes this volley of pain infliction, right? It, is, it, it triggers a cycle of uh, reaction and retaliation so that evil is actually spreading rather than being remediated. So the other option is to forgive. And Keller uh, points out that forgiveness in this case, of course, means refusing to make them pay. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make you suffer. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to refuse to make you pay, partly because I realize, perhaps, that their payment can't actually cover the cost. Right? I recognize that... You, causing you pain will not make my pain go away and so I just don't demand that payment but as he says refusing that refusal to make the other person pay is painful in itself you may not have thought about this one before or really reflected on it but, but to be deeply wounded I'm not talking about somebody ate the last bit of ice cream out of the freezer okay that one's, that one's easier to forgive than something really abusive or really deeply hurtful. You tracking with me? But that to just, to decide to forgive, to refuse to, to lash out, to do any of those things I just mentioned is painful in a different way. This is, this is Keller's observation. It's suffering of a different sort. But over time, that resentment burns lower and lower when it's not fueled. And so he, he tells the story of a time when he's counseling a young woman who just could not forgive her father for the hurtful things he had done. And he said to her, your father has defeated you as long as you hate him. You will stay trapped in your anger unless you forgive him thoroughly from the heart and begin to love him. And something just clicked for her in that and she decided to forgive him because as he says forgiveness must be granted before it can be felt it's the only way to stop the spread of evil see the, the, the demand for payment the attempt to cause pain and suffering in the other person actually spreads the evil rather than resolves it the implication here is that personal offense cannot be paid for by the other person. Personal offense cannot be paid for by the other person. I might make them pay, but it won't pay the actual cost of alleviating my pain. It's an attempt to rebuild something that's broken with bricks and boards of a different kind. Now, all of that um, is, is really to help so that we understand something about forgiveness in its nature that we've experienced. Because all of what I've just said, um, you, if you've lived any length of time, probably two things are true. You've experienced forgiveness in all of those ways, both the attempt to make another person suffer and find out it wasn't at all helpful and actually made things, made you feel worse if not made the situation worse. You've probably also 
discovered that real healing comes through forgiveness. And you've also probably experienced that you still struggle with all of this in spite of the fact that you know that's true. Right? Even though I know forgiveness is the path of healing, I'm going to feel better right now if I just caused you a little bit of pain. It remains a struggle for, pe- for people, in other words. But, but my, my purpose in using that as kind of this extended illustration is to help us understand something about the nature of forgiveness so then it sheds light on our understanding of the forgiveness of God. Because sometimes people ask, why couldn't God just forgive sin? Why, why did there have to be the whole thing of Jesus dying on a cross being buried in a tomb, resurrected. Why all of that? Why didn't God just forgive? He's God, for goodness sake. Well, first of all, have you, have you ever considered how that trivializes sin? Because nobody says to the rape victim, why don't you just forgive him? Right? As if just, just, just get over it and move on. Nobody says that. And that would be outrageous. And yet to say to God, why don't you just forgive, just terribly trivializes the nature of our sin. It's the worst kind of infidelity, our sin against him. But more to the point is that we just observe the fact through this this whole illustration that no one just forgives. That forgiveness by its nature is costly suffering. There's a loss that has to be paid for. And either the wrongdoer is going to pay for it or the person who's been wronged is going to pay for it. And in response to our sin, uh, God could either destroy us or restore us. In fact, he says in Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So to restore us required forgiveness, and forgiveness required his paying the sin debt. This is the connection, and I don't know how well I've said anything I've said up to right now, but if you've been sleeping, wake up now, uh, and we'll try to, try to close this out here. But there's a, by our sin, there is a cost that must be paid. And the options theoretically are that either we can pay it or he can pay it. But we can't pay it, right? To attempt to pay it is offering bricks and boards of a different kind. I mean, you talk about woefully inadequate, woefully insufficient, both in quantity or in just substance. This would be more like bringing bricks or boards to rebuild a wall that's made out of gold and diamonds. I mean, you're completely missing it. Don't feel proud of yourself looking like, God, I'm just going to do my part. Uh, don't, don't bother doing your part. It's just getting in the way. Get your bricks and boards out of the way <laughs> and let God apply the work that has been finished for you. That's the message of the gospel, to pay the sin debt 
God came in human form and joined us in our suffering, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He who was in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and then humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? To pay the debt that must be paid in order for, a gift for, for forgiveness to take place. There is no forgiveness without somebody paying the penalty. And God paid it for us. And I, I have no doubt uh, there are some here today who need to understand that, even though you've, you've spoken that language maybe for a long time. You've identified yourself as a believer. To the best you understand, you've placed your faith in Christ and, and walked in that faith and yet find yourself time and time again making the gospel about something you must do instead of embracing it as something that he has done for you. Don't keep trying to offer bricks and boards of the wrong kind. Do you know that every other world, major world religion essentially says that's what you must do? You've got to do your part. You've got to pay the cost. You've got to rebuild the gate and the wall. Only Christianity says there's no way you can rebuild that gate and the wall. I'll rebuild it for you. And for any here today who have never understood that about the Christian faith, that is the good news. That is the good news. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It is scandalous, but it's true. And if you receive that free gift by faith, not only do you inherit eternal life, not only do you become joint heirs with Jesus that all the riches of, of heaven become your inheritance, but he'll begin to transform you. All of those other things that we try to make um, relationship with God about, the good deeds toward others, the pure and holy living, the walking in favor with God and all the other things, um, he'll begin to produce out of what he has worked in, in you. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I pray by the grace of God that his Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of any who have not partaken of that and that today would be the day that your life is changed by receiving the free gift that's been offered because God paid the cost of forgiveness. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for 
this indescribable gift that you've given us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as this passage goes on to say that by way of that forgiveness, you've freed us from everything we couldn't be freed from by the law of Moses. And even those who don't consciously subscribe to the law of Moses, as it were, our inclination as human beings is to come up with some law of righteousness that we submit ourselves to that somehow by performing a certain set of deeds that we're going to secure righteousness, Lord, favor in your sight. We thank you, Lord, that it is not true, that it's not even possible. So, Lord, I pray that you would just grant rest to people right now. Rest to those who do name the name of Christ and continue picking up the burden of somehow presuming to cooperate with you to offer bricks and boards to build a gate of gold and diamonds. Lord, I just pray that you would free people today of that weight and that burden. And Lord, I pray that indeed there would be those who have come in here who have never really understood the gospel clearly. And Lord, I pray even in spite of any... um, tendency on my part to obscure that even. Lord, that you would make it clear by your spirit that you would reveal to people not only their sin, but your willingness to forgive all of it. Would you lead people to yourself today by your spirit and show them just how indescribably wonderful life is walking in favor with you and I ask it all in the name of our great Savior Jesus Christ Amen